All right, Psalm 69 is where we pick back up this evening, and I mentioned last week as we began Psalm 67, last week we looked at Psalm 67 and 68, I mentioned that 67 through 69, these Psalms, uh, there are a lot of messianic overtones in them. They're very messianic psalms, and of course, when I say that, what I mean is they are psalms that have a lot of reflections and even prophetic statements within them that are connected to the Messiah, to Jesus. Things that were spoken by the psalmist, whether David or whoever was writing, literally, again, we have to understand, hundreds, if not over a thousand years ago, prior to the time in which Jesus would ever enter into this world, uh, and yet they spoke specifically and directly of things that would pertain to the life of Jesus, to statements that Jesus would make. And again, because of that, it just reminds us that we serve a God uh, who dwells outside of time, uh, who is an eternal God who spans all of time and eternity. And how else does someone speak about something a thousand years over a thousand years before it takes place with specific accuracy and details of exactly how something was going to come to pass. And again, as the Holy Spirit was moving on the heart of David and these writers, they were speaking of things that pertained to what was going on in some way of what they were dealing with. And in some ways, they had no idea as the Spirit of the Lord was moving upon them that the timeless God of eternity was also putting things down on the pen to the paper that would describe with specific detail exactly who Jesus would be, what things he would accomplish, what things he would even declare. Again, just purposely allowing us to have all the more assurance of the authenticity of the word of God and that Jesus was exactly who he was, the very son of God, God manifested in human flesh and again, I want to say, as I said last week, just as a reminder, because of that and some of these uh, references and prophecies that we find in here that connect to the life of Christ, I want to try and give in connection to that maybe a little bit more than I typically do on a Wednesday evenings. We're kind of surveying uh, through larger portions of Scripture. Uh, a few more cross-references just to kind of help you see how where some of those pieces connect together. So again, if you're a note-taker or you're not opposed to flipping to some other sections, you want to do that. I uh, want to give you some of those references a little bit more than we normally do just because I think it's a little more helpful as we're looking at some of these things. And Psalm 69 particularly is actually a psalm, uh, probably second to, we believe, uh, Psalm 22 that is quoted and referenced more in the New Testament than any other psalm. Uh, I believe it's around 10 or 11 different times that, that there are verses from this psalm that are quoted in the New Testament. All four gospel writers reference verses from this psalm in regards to the life of Christ. Paul uh, quotes from this psalm in the New Testament letter of the book of Romans. Peter himself quotes from this psalm as well, uh, seeing how these verses spoke of things that connected to our understanding of Christ and what we now experience in New Testament Christianity. So uh, the psalm begins, David writing these things, you can tell that he's experiencing severe hardship due to mistreatment of the ungodly in the world around him. And there were those, David mentions, who hated him without a cause. And actually, the reason that they did hate him was simply because he was living committed to the Lord. 
Uh, and because he was living committed to the Lord, he was experiencing mistreatment. And again, there was this ungodly undertone, uh, those who despise God, as there always has been and there always will be, and there are those who hate God and hate God's ways and simply will work in opposition to that because they don't want to see the way of the Lord to prosper. Again, we have to always remember that there is a spiritual undercurrent that is always at work in the world. And we may see things happening in, in music or media or this or that. And we think, man, that is wicked. How can people be so wicked? Because the devil is wicked. <laughs> and there is a spiritual undercurrent that is happening underneath the surface, behind the scenes, that is persuading a lot of the things that are going on. Again, the Bible tells us, I didn't say this, God said this, First John says, the whole world lays under the sway of the wicked one. That is the world system, this broken world system that we live in, which is a fallen world system in which we're all born into sinful by nature. That's why we're bent to do what's wrong rather than gravitating towards doing what's right. And this whole world system that humanity has built that disregards God and doesn't want God's involvement, the, the sad thing is the Bible says the spiritual truth is this world lies under the sway, that is the persuasion, the direction, that is the ideas, the philosophies, the agendas. There's literally, whether people recognize it or not, I'm not saying people are consciously saying, yes, we asked the devil what to do, and then we made it policy or legislation. Or we asked the devil for the lyrics for our song, or we asked the devil for some agenda. I'm not saying people are some may be, truthfully, but I'm not saying people are consciously doing that, but the spiritual reality is the Bible tells us that the devil is swaying and persuading and guiding much of what's going on. And that's why we see this resistance and why even the New Testament says all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There is going to be that conflict that takes place in the spiritual realm. And David here was experiencing that very thing as he writes this psalm. He's describing severe hardship and mistreatment he's enduring from the ungodly who despise God and did not like the ways of God in their world and David's representation of that or any who were followers of Yahweh at his time. So David, in light of this, he cries out to God. He begins verse 1 saying, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, he says. I sink in deep mire. Where there is no standing, that is, there's, there's no footing. I can't get any solid ground underneath me. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. So David here is describing a very difficult and even more, I guess you might better say, a desperate struggle that he is going through right now in this time in his life. He's using very picturesque language here. He uses two analogies. One that he feels like he's drowning. He feels like he's being overflowed with floodwaters. He describes there in verse uh, 1 and 2, he says, the waters have come up to my neck. Again, the, the idea there is, is David, in essence, is saying, I feel like I'm doing everything I possibly can, and the waters are rising, and, and I'm doing everything I can just to keep my head above water. Have you ever felt like that in an experience in life before where literally you, you feel like that the waters around you are rising and literally you feel like that you are straining to do everything you can just to keep up, just to keep your chin 
up above the water. Like, and you just feel like you're drowning under your circumstances. Or maybe the weight of the difficulty that you find yourself in. Or even maybe some unpleasant or unfair thing that even perhaps has come into your life. And you literally feel like that you're drowning under the pressures and the circumstances, and you feel like, man, I, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I feel like I'm sinking and drowning. He says in verse 2, I, I feel like I have come into deep waters. You know, again, we have that cliche statement, man, I'm in deep water. I'm in deep water now, man. And the idea there is I, I, I can't touch bottom. I don't know what I'm going to do. I am out here. I'm all alone. I can't touch the bottom. I don't know how long I'm going to keep my head above water, and this may be it for me. I'm in deep water. And I think to some degree we can all understand what that's like. Well, this is what David was experiencing. Again, perhaps you've experienced that. Maybe even you're experiencing that to some degree right now. He says, I feel like I'm drowning. And then the other thing he describes is he feels like that he's kind of stuck he calls it deep mire, again, like deep mud if you were in a swampy area, or maybe another analogy that we would understand is if you were like stuck in quicksand. And, and so David says, I also feel like that not only am I drowning, but I feel like that I am sinking in deep mire. And again, if you're in quicksand, right, and, or you're in thick mud and you're trying to get yourself out of that, sometimes the harder you try, what happens? The worse it becomes, right? The harder you try, the more it sucks you down. And sometimes that's a place where we find ourselves, where we literally feel like we are stuck in an unpleasant, difficult situation, and we are trying every option we can think of. And so we're pushing this button and trying to manipulate that and do this and fix that, and, and we're trying everything we can, and we are exhausting all of our energies and our efforts and our ideas, and all we end up doing is making ourselves sink worse and worse and worse and worse and further and further down. And look, sometimes in our lives, though those are not pleasant experiences, those sometimes become the, the tools that humble us as human beings that actually bring us to the end of ourselves so that ultimately we realize when you're stuck in quicksand, there's only one way you're more than likely getting out. If somebody else pulls you out, right? If somebody else saves you, if someone else intervenes because you can't save yourself, you're not getting out of that. Or if you're drowning, that's the benefit of, of, of what a lifeguard does, right? They come out into the water. And, you know, it's even interesting. I've never been a lifeguard, but we all mostly understand. Typically, a lot of times, lifeguards are even taught if somebody's struggling to let them finish struggling, then grab them and pull them out so that they don't yank the lifeguard down with them. And sometimes God, to a degree, was, how long you got to struggle for? <laughs> I'll get you right before you drown. But boy, how, how much water do you want to swallow, man? <laughs> Aren't you sick and tired of sucking all that salt water and, and choking and coughing and feeling like you're drowning? Aren't you miserable enough? And, and he's just waiting for us to ultimately say what David says there in verse 1. Save me, God. This isn't working. Lord, save me. Save me out of this situation. Save me from myself. Sometimes that's the thing we need saving of even more. And again, this reminds me of, of what Peter ultimately says in the New Testament. Remember when Peter uh, you know, started to walk out onto the water that one occasion, Jesus came out in the middle of the storm and he says, Lord, if that's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And he says, sorry, Peter, come on. You have faith? Step on out here in the middle of the storm with me. And Peter steps out into the water 
And as soon as he starts walking towards Jesus, he makes the error that we've all done before. We take our eyes off the Lord, and then he looked at the stormy circumstances, and then all of a sudden, then he started sinking, right? And in that moment, what did Peter do? He prayed a prayer much like what verse 1 is, save me, O God. Help, Lord. And Jesus didn't say, Peter, that is not a long enough, religious-sounding enough request, son. I mean, I didn't hear any Hail Mary or Our Father or these or thous or, oh, most wonderful potentate, most holy and all. Peter just said, help, save me. But again, that's sincerity. And what's God ultimately wanting? He doesn't want your religious activity. He wants you to just be genuine, to get real, right? I mean, that's what we want with people on the earth. Who's not had somebody say to you before you said to someone else before, look, would you just cut out the nonsense? Just get real, man. Just get real. And I think sometimes God is looking at us saying, just get real. And there's something about David's Psalms that one of the things we love about them is David was not a perfect man. But one thing that was, I have to say, true about David is David knew how to get real with God. I mean, right, you see his language, the way he says stuff. He's so picturesque in the way he describes things. And whether he's so angry, he's asking God to break people's teeth out of their mouths when they're his enemies or whether he's in his deepest depression, Lord, I'm so downcast. Why have you abandoned me? And here he says, Lord, I am sinking and I am drowning, Lord, and I'm in deep water. Please save me, God. I, I can't get out of this. He says, verse three, I am weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. So again, the idea they're weary with my crying. So he said, look, I am exhausted my throat is worn out. I've been crying out for help and nothing has been working. Lord, he says, my eyes are failing, but I'm waiting for you, God, because I realize that only if you intervene am I going to be delivered out of this. And you know, that's, that, that's, that's a hard place to be, but that's not a bad place to be. It's never a bad place to be where you find yourself completely hoping in nothing and no one but God alone. Because when you come to that place and I come to that place, we have discovered one of the most important things that we all need to know, and that's how much we need God's help and involvement in our lives. And whether it's being in that place initially in salvation where God needs to allow you to struggle and to feel like you're drowning and you're sinking and you're stuck in life because you keep living in your own sinful and you know, self-governed way, which been there, done that. I did that for almost 18 years of my life to where you finally cry out to God, finally ask Jesus to save you personally, genuinely, and you meet the Lord in that way personally, or whether it's just from time to time where we go through things and we think we're going to muscle our way through it or swim our way back to the shore, and ultimately we realize, you know what, man, I am so dependent upon God that that is the only hope and the only expectancy I have, and I'm going to wait for God because if God doesn't come through, I'm... I'm done. There's nothing else I can do. And that's not a bad place when we see the hand of God work when we call out in that way. Verse 4, he then goes on to say, those who hate me, so this seems to be some of what David was dealing with, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me. Being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing, David says, I still must restore it. So he's describing here in verses four uh, here for us, basically how he had great enemies, a great amount of enemies as well, because he says, those who hate me without cause, he says, are more than the hairs of my head. 
So he's saying, Lord, I have tons of enemies. I feel like everyone is against me and opposed to me. And if that weren't enough, he says, they are mighty who would, David's using strong, destroy me. Lord, these things that are against me, these people who are against me, they're literally trying to destroy my life. And in David's life, that was true in one sense. Saul was trying to destroy him. Saul was chasing him down with enemies, trying to put him to death and, and armies coming against him. And, and David literally was fleeing for his life from time to time. And we as well at times in our lives will face different enemies and things that come against us. Sometimes the enemies are just the, the sinful weaknesses of our own flesh. And you know what? Those enemies uh, would gladly destroy you and destroy me. And sin is a destructive enemy. And, and many of us in this room know the destructive, destroying power of sin and how it would destroy our life if it was left unchecked. And it, in a mighty way, sin has a strength and an ability to destroy us. And it wants to do exactly what David's enemies were doing to him. They were treating him wrongfully. And he says, I've stolen nothing, but I have to restore it. In other words, they're, they're taking everything from me. And that's what sin will do in our lives. Just like these enemies were doing David, they were just taking things from David. I haven't even wronged or robbed them, but they're robbing me blind. They're taking everything from me and taking advantage of me. And David here is just describing how they had no worthy basis even for hating him, and yet they did. He says of verse 4, they hate me. He says, this is the hardest part. They hate me without a cause. I haven't even done anything to give them a reason, a genuine basis to hate me. Now, this is one of the first places, verse 4, where we see a prophetic reference to something in regards, <clears throat> excuse me, to the life of Jesus. In, in John chapter 15, when Jesus was speaking about how he was experiencing the hatred of people, Jesus said this in John chapter 15. He says, uh, these things I command you that you love one another. And then he says, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, he said, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my namesake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He says, he who hates me hates my father also. If I had done, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father, verse 25. But this happened, Jesus quotes now, this happened that the word might be fulfilled which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So as David was describing these things, the Holy Spirit was directing him, and ultimately he was describing something down through the ages where there would be a greater violation to a much grosser degree of someone being hated and wrongfully mistreated who was completely innocent of any wrongdoing and being mistreated in the most horrific way when they were completely innocent and Jesus was what? A perfect person. And so as David's writing this, he's describing something and seeing further down the ages to where Jesus ultimately fulfilled it. In John 15, he describes how there was tremendous hatred towards him. 
without a cause. And think about it. Who was Jesus? Jesus was God in human flesh living among us. The Bible says that Jesus never sinned in thought, in word, or in deed. He never did anything wrong, and he never did anything wrong to anyone. Peter says all he did was go about doing good everywhere. He just went around doing good to people. And yet, what did they do with Jesus, a perfect, kind, gracious individual? They hated him. They hated him without a cause. They hated him for no good reason when all he wanted to do was love them and help them and assist them. And Jesus takes that and he says it not only of himself, but he reminds in John 15, you and I who are all his disciples, if they hated me without a cause and you are my follower, don't be surprised. He doesn't say that they may kind of dislike you. He says if they don't hate you just because you say you're a follower of Jesus. If they don't hate you just because you want to honor Jesus or live according to the will of God and the word of God, just like Jesus himself did, that that same animosity and hatred comes forth towards us. And so Jesus here claimed this very statement, how it happened to him, and David experienced it, and we as well to some degree will find that pushback and animosity towards us, even as our Lord did as we live in relationship with him. Verse 5, he then says, O God, David says, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. So David acknowledges, again, certainly here, Lord, I, I realize I'm just as foolish as the next person. He says, Lord, I'm not a perfect individual and, and my sins are not hidden from you. Lord, I, I know at times, you know, I fail and I make mistakes as well. And he says, and, and that's all in your presence. It's in your sight. And David here just acknowledges this reality of his own personal sinfulness, just in humility, says, Lord, I know I can be just as foolish as the next person, and my sins are never hidden from you. Again, what a lesson David had learned in that many times. Again, you can sometimes and I can hide our sins from other people and maybe even for a time get away with it, but our sins are never hidden from the Lord. The Bible says everything is laid naked and bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But Lord sees everything in our lives. And that's why it's so important for us to have an attitude of humility to realize there is one person beyond you that knows everything about you. Most other people don't, right? I mean, most other people in our life, they don't know everything about you. Everything you've done since the moment you took your first breath. Everything you've said from the moment you took your first breath. Everything you've thought in here that nobody else saw. God's seen all that. He's aware of all that. And that's why it's so crucial that we be humble before the Lord. He says, Lord, my sins are, my sins are not hidden from you. You're fully aware of everything about me. And he says, verse 6, let not those who... Wait for you, O Lord of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Let not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O God of Israel. So he says, Lord, I don't want people to become ashamed or embarrassed because of what hardships I'm experiencing as your servant. I don't want people to be embarrassed that God's people suffer at times. And David was a follower of the Lord, but yet he was suffering for being a follower of the Lord. And he says, Lord, I don't want people to be ashamed and embarrassed of that. Peter writes the same thing in the New Testament, that when we're dishonored or we suffer as the Lord's people, that we shouldn't be ashamed of that. We shouldn't be embarrassed about that. It, it, it's 
in a sense, par for the course. It's part of what we experience. And he says, Lord, I don't want people to be ashamed because they see me suffering. He says, verse 7, because for your sake, I have borne reproach. Shame has covered my face. Again, as we read verse 7 there, certainly that was David's experience, bearing reproach and being shamed before others. But who experienced that to a much greater degree? Our Lord did, right? The reproach that Jesus experienced, the mockery that our Lord experienced as people hurled insults towards him and mocked him. Jesus allowed himself, think about it, he allowed himself to be disgraced and to be dishonored. The Bible even tells us that, that not only was he allowing mockery and insults, but what, people were spitting on Jesus? I mean, that's, that's about as degrading as you can get, right? People spitting in your face. And yet here's Jesus. He's the son of God. Imagine. Imagine literally, right? I mean, you, you walk down to the beach, go find the biggest muscle head you can and walk up and spit in his face if you have a lot of faith or you can run fast. Most of us probably wouldn't do that, right? Or find, you know, some great boxer or MMA fighter. He's vacationing on the beach and you recognize him. He goes, hey, hey, I recognize you. You've destroyed hundreds of people and spit in his face. Probably not a real good idea, right? Jesus was God. God. And they were spitting in his face. And what did Jesus do? He let him do it. In humility and meekness and mercy and compassion, he says, there verse 7, this does not speak of our Lord. He says, for your sake, I've borne reproach, mockery, insult. I've let myself be reproached and disgraced and dishonored. Why did Jesus do that? He did it for the sake of obeying the will of his Father. And really, for our sake, he bore that reproach so that he could continue to be the sinless, merciful Savior he was. He came the first time as a suffering servant. I don't recommend spitting in his face when he comes back a second time as a mighty king and a glorified warrior. <laughs> he came the first time as a suffering servant to provide salvation. But he is coming again. But our Lord, he endured shame and reproach. He says, verse 8, I have become a stranger to my brothers and an alien to my mother's children. So David was beginning to feel ostracized from his own family, his brothers, and to his mother's children, to his own siblings. He said, I feel like some of my own family members are beginning to just push me away because of things in David's life that they didn't like or didn't agree with. And, and so, so they were beginning to cause separation. They didn't want anything to do with David and were beginning to detach themselves. And that's a hard thing, right? It's hard to be rejected by your own family members, your own kinship, your own flesh and blood, and David was experiencing that. But as we read verse 8 here, of course, this is a, a, only a greater description, really, of exactly as well what our Lord experienced. The Bible tells us that Jesus' own brothers mistreated him and did not believe him. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, they were trying to persuade Jesus, hey, if you're really the Messiah, you need to go down there and do a miracle. Go show off your strength. Nobody who wants to be famous and powerful doesn't show themselves off. And they were trying to persuade you. And it says because his own brothers didn't believe him. They didn't believe he was the son of God. They didn't believe he was the savior. They thought, are you kidding me? You're our brother, man. You, dude, you got a God complex? What's the matter with you? And they didn't believe him. His own brothers did not believe 
who he was, that he literally was the son of God. Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. The Bible teaches us this in Mark chapter 3 and John chapter 7 and other places that the idea of this, the perpetual virginity of Mary is an unbiblical idea. Jesus had other half-siblings. They were born from the same mother, different father, because Jesus didn't have a human father. Jesus had a divine father, God the Father, conceived by the Holy Spirit, the life of his son Jesus in the womb of a virgin human woman so that Jesus could be fully divine and fully human at the same time. So Jesus had a, 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 a heavenly father. All the rest of his brothers had an earthly father, but his brothers and sisters had the same mother. So they were half siblings. And the Bible teaches this reality. And yet his family members, Mark chapter three, literally says that they, they went after Jesus at one point because they said he is out of his mind. They thought he had lost his marbles. They couldn't understand why he was going around telling people he was the Messiah and doing all these things. You know, what's interesting is notice in verse 8, again, and, and think of this. The Spirit of the Lord is inspiring this to be written by David. He refers to, he says, his, his siblings as my mother's children. Verse 8, I'm an alien to my mother's children. Notice he doesn't say my father's children because that wouldn't be true because they didn't share the same father. They all shared the same mother, Mary, the same biological mother, but Jesus had a different father. His father was God the father. The rest of his half-siblings were born of the same mother, but they had a different human earthly father. And how interesting that the Holy Spirit refers to the siblings of Jesus, even here, and how they, his own siblings, rejected him, but that the Spirit of God says, yes, they're my brothers, but he says, they're my mother's children my half-siblings. They're my mother's children. We're born of the same mother, but a completely different father. Because zeal, verse 9, for your house has eaten me up, he says, and the reproaches of those who reproach you, that is those who reproach God, have now fallen on me. So again, if people reproach God and they don't like God, then that same reproach falls upon those who walk in fellowship with God. Verse 10, he says, when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that became my reproach. I also made sackcloth, and sackcloth is a symbolic garment worn of sorrow or grieving. So he says, I made grief and sorrow my garment. The Bible says Jesus was acquainted with grief, and I became a byword to them. And those, David says, who sit in the gate and speak against me, and I am the song of the drunkard. So David was dealing with so much reproach and difficulty. He says, I have become the song of the of the town drunks. The town drunks, they sit there in their drunken condition, and they sing mockery, and they make fun of me. And again, he's continually describe how he was in a time of sorrow and great reproach. What's interesting, and no, I wasn't skipping over it. If you look back in verse 9, there's another statement there, verse 9, as David says, zeal for your house has eaten me up. In other words, I find myself eaten up. That is, I find myself consumed with, he says, God, zeal for your house. And David did, in his sense, have a zeal for the house of God. Remember, whose idea was it to build the temple? It was David's, right? Solomon got to do it, but it was David who had great zeal and passion and wanted to build a house for the Lord. And it was his zeal and his consuming passion to want to do that. Well, as David says this, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Ultimately, 
this same passage, this verse here, verse 9, becomes what's described of of Jesus in John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2 is the occasion where Jesus goes into the temple precincts, remember, which was in his estimation his father's house. And Jesus goes into the temple area, John chapter 2, and it tells us this, that after the Passover was at hand, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is John 2, 14. And it says, and Jesus found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and money changers doing business. So again, the house of God had become like a local mall. It was all about the monetary transactions, and, and so they were taking advantage of the people, and they were using the gathering of the Lord to basically be a place where they would sell animals and exorbitant prices, and they were taking advantage of the naive attitudes and the sincere hearts of the people of God. They were changing money for the temple donations at exorbitant rates, and so people who were fake religious individuals were manipulating those who were trying to worship. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. But, but what's God's attitude towards that? Well, Jesus demonstrates that. It says that when Jesus saw these things, he made a whip of cords and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold the doves, Take these things away. In other words, get this stuff out of my house. It doesn't belong here. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise, where it's more about money than it is about ministry. Ouch. Don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples, it says, remembered that it was written, Psalm 69, what we're looking at tonight, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. As they watched Jesus doing this, they remembered, oh my goodness. Psalm 69 described that someone would come with tremendous zeal. And we thought David, our father, had great zeal for the father's house. This is the Messiah. He must, he must have sincere desire and zeal for the father's house. And as they watched Jesus doing this, and again, we can only envision what this scene must have been like as Jesus, literally it says, made a whip and drove everybody out of the temple that were doing these things, and he was flipping over tables of the money changers. You want to talk about pretty intense, pretty intense. And think about that. It doesn't say Jesus turned to the 12 disciples and he said, boys, we're going in there like a wrecking ball. You follow me? Peter, you like cutting people's ears off? I know what you're like, Peter. You get right behind me, bro. You get on my cape tail. We are going it all by himself. Don't tell me Jesus was a weak and an effeminate man. As one man, Jesus went in a place where people had tremendous authority. And with a whip and all by himself, as a very masculine man, he went in there and started cracking a whip and flipping over people's tables and saying, get out of here. This is corrupt. It is perverse. You're taking advantage of people. And he exerted his authority and he drove out people who were doing horrific, horrible, wrong, evil things, manipulating people with tremendous strength. And nobody apparently said anything. <laughs> they all stood down and ran out and Jesus drove that evil out of the temple. I love that picture of Jesus. And Jesus was God in the flesh, and Jesus was love manifested. 
So sometimes that's what love does. That's what love does. Love's not passive. Sometimes love is very assertive in a righteous manner. And Jesus did this in a very right and a righteous manner because of the zeal that he had for his father's house. He had great you know, jealousy. He wanted his father's house honored and he wanted his father's children treated properly. And so he went in with this great zeal. And here, Psalm 69 prophetically refers to that. Back in Psalm 69, verse 18, David goes on then and begins to cry out to God for help. He says, but as for me, my prayer is to you, God. Oh, Lord, in the acceptable time. He's, Lord, it's, this seems like the acceptable time. I need your help. And again, I think there is an acceptable time where we need to recognize we got to cry out to God sincerely and get serious about praying and seeking God's face. He says, oh, God, verse 13, in the multitude of your mercy, hear me in the truth of your salvation. Deliver me out of the mire. And I notice he goes back to this picturesque language all the way back from verses 1 and 2, and he's just asking God now to get him out of the dilemma that he was in. Right back in verse 1 and 2, he was describing it. Now he's using the same language, but he's in prayer expressing his need for God's salvation and that God would bring intervention into his life and deliver him out of his situation that he was stuck in. So he says, Lord, please deliver me out of this mire. I'm tired of being stuck in the mud. Lord, please, he says, do not let me sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me. Lord, I, I can't get free from them, but Lord, please deliver me out of the deep waters. Let not the flood water overflow me, nor let the deep swallow me up and let not the pit shut its mouth on me. Now, as David's praying that in regards to asking for God's intervention, as you and I sometimes, I think, are wise to pray the same prayer as David if we find ourselves in a tough spot like that. God's a God of deliverance. We know that. You know, I look at this, and as much of this psalm, certainly not all of it, has, you know, by the Holy Spirit's direction, these, you know, messianic undertones to it. You know, I, I think of how as David's describing that language, Lord, deliver me out of this. I feel like I'm sinking, and there are those who hate me, and I'm in deep waters. I, I picture in some ways, perhaps, if that was not also the heart of Jesus as he was communicating with his father, Remember on one occasion, Jesus said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And, and imagine what it was like for Jesus. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin for us. So in other words, imagine, here's Jesus. For all of time and eternity, he is sinless, pure, righteous, undefiled, has lived in glory in heaven with the Father, and then he comes into this world. And he humbly takes the body of a man and human flesh, and he endures human experiences, but then ultimately all of the mistreatment mounts up and mounts up, and the mockery and the spitting and the mistreatment and this and that. And then ultimately, the Bible tells us the sin of the whole world was put upon Jesus. Can you imagine in his humanity how he felt like that he literally was drowning in the filth and the mire and the overwhelming just pressures of, of, of you know, sinking down in, in the sin of the whole world. All at once, he's shocked as the Father puts the iniquity of the whole world upon him. Imagine what that was like for Jesus mentally and emotionally. But he did that for you. He did that for me out of love for us. He let the floodwaters of the sin of the whole world come upon him. 
We're swallowing up his whole life. He's becoming sin, the sin offering for you and I. Verse 16, he says, Hear me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. Turn to me according to the multitude of your mercies. Lord, he says, you're merciful and you're loving and you're kind, so please, Lord, turn towards me. Again, it's almost as if David sensed God turned away from him, as if somehow he was asking the Lord, Lord, I feel like that, that you're not paying attention. Please turn to me and do not hide your face from your servant. Again, remember Jesus cried out in his humanity on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw near to my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of my enemies. He says, verse 19, you know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. You see all my adversaries and the dishonor and the shame I'm experiencing, David said. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, David says, but there was none. Not one person would have pity upon David's misfortune and the mistreatment he was enduring. And for comforters, was there anybody who would care or show compassion? He says, but I found none. In other words, no one cared. Everyone seemed heartless. They also gave me gall for my food and my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink, and gall is a bitter substance. And he says, for my thirst, as I was thirsty, they gave me vinegar, sour vinegar to drink. David's picture here is he's being horribly mistreated. And he's enduring tremendous cruelty already. And then on top of that, they're just adding insult to injury. And he says, and it's as if nobody even cares. Nobody has any compassion. Nobody even has any willingness to offer comfort as they see me suffering in my cruel condition and the, the difficulties I'm going through. And, and it broke his heart, the fact that people were so cold-hearted and that they had no seemingly you know, care or concern in any way. And to make it worse, he was already in cruel conditions and now they were just making it more bitter for him. They were, they were in a sense, serving him things. He's using picturesque language, you know, probably no doubt in his situation of how he says, they were just making, making my situation more bitter and worse for me. Now, as we read these verses again, certainly I think some of what's described here is a reflection of what Jesus was enduring as he was on the cross and suffering dishonor and shame from the sin of the world being heaped upon him. And, you know, who would ever think of this? We think of Jesus' broken body physically, right? That his flesh was broken and his body was, was whipped and scourged and a crown of thorn was beaten into his head and the nails were pierced through his wrists and through his feet. And, and we think of all the broken body, the physical suffering of Jesus, but perhaps maybe we don't take in consideration that in verse 20, a broken heart. I mean, imagine what it was like for Jesus, the love that he has for you and I, the love he has for humanity, and how much it must have broken the heart of Jesus to experience what he was having to experience, being exposed to all the realities of the sin of humanity and seeing everything that people would do and all the sins that would happen as he was absorbing all that, and then the mistreatment and the people that were betraying him and how it broke his heart in those ways as he was dealing with that, all of this heart was full of heaviness. Again, the mental, emotional anguish and stress upon our Lord and how no one seemed to even take pity. No one even seemed to care. They just watched it happen and witnessed it and no one seemed to even be concerned about Jesus in his suffering. And then verse 21 described literally events that happened in Matthew 27 and John 19. It tells us that they gave Jesus 
uh, sour wine mixed with gall. And, and Matthew 27 says they offered this to Jesus as he was suffering on the cross, and it says that Jesus would not drink it when they offered that to him the first time with the gall because the gall was a bitter substance that had, in a sense, like a narcotic-type effect. It had a painkiller. Typically, it was given to those who were being crucified to just deaden some of the pain sensation as they were in tremendous suffering, and Jesus refused it and wouldn't take it. Why? Because he wanted to absorb in complete willing consciousness the full brunt of all the pain, all the suffering, even all the mental and emotional anguish. He didn't want anything to desensitize him from experiencing all of that. And so he refused the narcotic substance, and he, and he wouldn't take the painkiller in that situation. Now, later on, the Bible tells us in John 19 that Jesus cried out from the cross, I thirst, and then they gave him sour wine vinegar to drink. And there it says he did receive it. Now, I think the reason why Jesus received that sour wine, which didn't have the same effect as the narcotic painkiller type substance, is because right after Jesus I thirst, his mouth was becoming so dry as he was suffocating upon the cross. And he knew that he had another statement that still needed to be uttered. And with his dry mouth, he wasn't able to say it as loud as he could. So he took a brief drink, what they offered to him, so that his mouth could be moistened because the very next thing he did, said as he died on the cross was, it is finished. And that he wanted to make sure everybody heard. In other words, paid in full. It's finished. No one needs to add anything. You and I don't have to do anything else to try and make ourselves be right with God because everything Jesus experienced suffering on our behalf, it's finished. We just need to believe that and receive it for ourselves, And to be able to know that in gratitude, Lord, thank you so much that you finished something that I could never have done. And so, Lord, in gratitude, I receive that. Thank you that it's finished. We don't have to work for salvation. The work has already been accomplished. Jesus finished it, and he took that last drink to utter that very thing. He says, verse 22, now let their table become a snare before them. Now, David here lets out some of his intensity, and I'm not going to apologize for what he says, but you, you know, honest David gets here. He says, and their well-being, may it become a trap, Lord. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see. In other words, God, they don't want to see. So just blind them completely. Now, here's David praying in his honesty, like you and I sometimes. We have some strong emotions and thoughts. Again, look how raw David's being. I'm not certainly endorsing his prayer, but he says, and make their loins shake continually. You can interpret that yourself. Verse 24, pour out your indignation upon them, God, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Lord, they want to reject you and reproach you and reproach me. Lord, give them what they deserve and what they want. Let them face your indignation, God. If they hate you, then let them face your wrathful anger. Let their dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in their tents for they persecute the ones that you have struck and talk of grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity. God, they want to sin. Let them sin completely all the way more and more and let them not come into your righteousness let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Now, you can tell David's a little upset there. He's blowing off a little steam, right? But if you're going to blow off steam, better to blow off steam in the presence of God instead of the presence of other people because God can handle it. He's got big shoulders. And God can say, David, I, I, I let you blow off your steam there. Now, I'm, I'm not going to do that. That's why I'm God and you're not. 
You're ready to blot people out of the book of the living. You want to, Lord, don't let them go to heaven. Just give, they want fire, give them fire. God, light them up. And, and, and again, so thankful that God is God. And sometimes, you know, we pray things that sometimes we probably shouldn't be praying. But David's angry. He's hurting. He's been wounded by people. What is interesting is as David prays this very severe prayer, he indicates very clearly one thing, and that is this, is that for those who are the enemies of God and reject God, if they don't repent, there's not a real good end coming for them. David did realize that. Facing the wrathful indignation of God, being blotted out of the book of life, not entering into eternity, the, the, the Lamb's book of life, not coming into the righteous presence of God, it is not a good thing for those who live in rejection of God for their ultimate end. And David understood that. You know, what's interesting is in Matthew 23, and you can check it out later, is Jesus was rebuking the religious leaders for all of their religious activity, but no real relationship with God. Jesus actually quotes from Psalm 69, verse 25, that their dwelling place be desolate. And he quotes that in connection to the fact of saying how much he wished that the, 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 the religious people in the day of Israel would have repented. He said, how I've longed, my father has, to gather you like a mother hen would, would gather her little chicks under her wings. But he said, but you are not willing. And he says, apparently you're going to continue to reject God all the way to the end to such a place in Jesus's to where your house will become desolate. And Jesus refers to this again. Does, does God want wrath to come upon people? No. He wants them to repent. But if people don't repent, then they are opting to ultimately face a very, very scary and painful eternal destination. And David describes it quite picturesque here. Well, let's finish up. Verse 29, but I am poor and sorrowful. David says, let your salvation, O God, set me upon high. I will praise the name of God with a song. And magnify him with thanksgiving. This shall please the Lord better than an ox or a bull which has horns. And the humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek your God, your heart shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoner. So David turns from his hurt and his hardship. And he turns now towards God, encouraging his heart to worship the Lord. He says, I'm going to praise the name of God with a song and magnify him with thanksgiving. And I love what he says in verse 31. He says, and here's what I know, to praise God with a song and thanksgiving. He says this, look what he says, will please the Lord better than an ox or a bull. What was that? A very expensive sacrifice, right? And David's saying, you know what you, I sense, really want God? You don't want just some meaningless sacrifice. Because see, anybody, could just drag an ox or drag a bull down to the temple and kind of pay God off, right? And, and okay, what, what, is it, what does it take? I'm just going to pay God off. You know, it's like paying off the Godfather. I'm just going to pay him off. I just want to get out of trouble so he doesn't harm me. I'm going to pay him off. Here's my sacrifice, God. What do you want? Let me make amends. And David says, you know what pleases God more than just religious payoff efforts? He says, sincere worship from a person's heart. Because the Bible says that it's that sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. God, God, the greatest sacrifice, the thing that pleases the Lord, is when you sincerely sacrifice your heart to him. Because that's your greatest possession. Because we want to govern our own heart and do what we want with our own lives. So he says, Lord, 
this sacrifice of my worship to thank you, to praise you, that pleases you more, he says, than any religious activity. And therefore, the humble should see this and, and be glad and rejoice. And when you seek God, he said, it makes your heart come alive. He says, those who seek your God, your heart shall live. Let heaven, he says, verse 34, and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. Also, the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. So David here concludes this psalm almost, it seems now, kind of praying for the benefit, the blessing of God upon his people, upon Zion, Jerusalem, building the cities of Judah. He says that they would dwell there and possess it. And the descendants, God's servants, the Jews, he said, who love his name would dwell in it. Now, it's interesting that David is, is saying and praying these things, and we can't be certain exactly what he's referring to. Is he just asking for God's blessing upon the people? Or, again, as the Holy Spirit is directing David in his prayer, is David perhaps, in a sense, prophetically describing exactly what will happen in the future of the history of Israel, where the people of Israel, because of their rejection of God, as a part of their consequence, will be banished from their land, but God in his mercy promises to do what? To regather them back to the land, which is actually what God did after the Jewish people literally for centuries having no homeland, and yet God promising the reality of their national identity and that God has a plan for the Jewish people even though they rejected him as their Messiah, and that God ultimately did exactly what these verses to some degree make reference of saving Zion, building back the cities of Judah, and again, the people, the Jewish people, dwelling there and possessing their land, the land that God gave to them. Because in 1948, what happened? A sociological miracle happened. Israel, again, reclaimed their land and established their national identity. You study history, there are no people group that have ever existed since the time humanity began who have gone more than a generation or two without a homeland and retained their national identity. The Jewish people had no homeland for hundreds of years, but they retained their national identity and they reclaimed their homeland. Why? Because God said it. Do you want to know if your Bible is true? The Jews. The Jews, because they're back in their homeland. And people hate them, but they're in their homeland because God said it would happen, and what God says happened always comes to pass. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Let's have Chris lead us in a few songs of worship tonight, and let's give to the Lord what pleases him, the sacrifice of our praise. Father, thank you.